Welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. In 1958, in the wake of the Soviet Union launching Sputnik 1, the world's first artificial satellite, into space, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed the National Aeronautics and Space Act into law. The National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA, was born, and the space race was underway. In the following decades, the world would see the first man in space, the first spacewalk, and astronauts landing on the surface of the moon. Across eight different programs, the United States would fly 239 space missions, with 135 of those representing the space shuttle program. On August 31st, 2011, The United States shuttle program was officially ended, and the United States government was out of the business of space exploration and travel. Today, private companies like Elon Musk's SpaceX, Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic, and Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin are leading the way into the final frontier. Elon Musk has announced his plan to have one million people living in a colony on Mars by the year 2050. As a new space race to settle on Mars and perhaps beyond takes flight, significant ethical questions remain unclear and unanswered. Today, we talk with Joel Sircell, an entrepreneur and space technologist, who argues that we need to start building international consensus on questions surrounding bioethics, property rights, laws governing space travel and space settlements, and stewardship of God's creation outside of the Earth's atmosphere. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Joel Sircell is an entrepreneur and innovator who has co-founded three successful companies, ICS Associates, Momentus, and Transastra. He is a six-time NASA NIAC Fellow and one of the first two NIAC Fellows to receive their Phase Three award. During his 14-year career at JPL, Joel led NASA's Advanced Space Propulsion Technology Research Program, architected JPL's end-to-end space project engineering process, and started the NSTAR project, which was flown in space on the Deep Space One and the Dawn mission to the asteroid belt. Joel is also the inventor of the Mosquito Soil Hardness Measuring System, currently in use by U.S. Special Forces. He has served the National Academy of Sciences, advised the Jasons, lectured for 12 years at Caltech, and given over 200 speeches and courses to agencies of the U.S. government, NASA, private industry, and universities in North and South America, Europe, and Asia. He is the author of 16 patent applications in aerospace technology. Joel Sircell, welcome to Acton Line. Well, it's a delight to be here. Thank you very much. So quite a lot in your bio there. Um, What got you into space technology in the first place that set you on the path to do all of this? 
Well, in a sense, I was never not in space technology. Um, when I was a child, uh, my father used to take us out into the Arizona desert to look at the stars and ponder the universe and humanity's place in it. And uh, I was a small boy when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon and that profoundly affected me. And it just never occurred to me that humanity wouldn't be making the leap into the cosmos during my lifetime and that I wouldn't be part of it. Um, and so, you know, my recreational activities in high school and, and uh, college were reading science fiction novels or designing spacecraft that could do things in space. So part of your experience has been in asteroid and lunar mining. Can you explain um, what you did there, what that looks like, the importance of asteroid and lunar mining to us back here on Earth? Yeah, so um, uh, the importance of, of, let's just, let's bundle asteroid and lunar mining into the general field of space resources. And the field of space resources has sort of a near-term importance and a longer-term importance. Um, the near-term importance is that um, as we start launching larger missions into cislunar space, that's the space sort of between here and the moon, and this generally includes the space around the moon and environments therein. Um, as we start to launch bigger, more ambitious missions, um, a big part of all those costs are just the rocket propellant that you have to launch up from the earth so that the spacecraft that are pushing the astronauts around can do their job. And so in the relatively near term, meaning in the sort of five to 10 year time frame, the biggest application of space resources will be for harvesting rocket propellant to make it less expensive to do things in space. And, and we can make that rocket propellant out of materials that exist in ices uh, in the lunar poles and uh, on asteroids that are in some ways easier to get to than the moon. So short term, it's all about water and rocket propellant ingredients. Um, longer term, um, the, the resources that the solar system offers to humanity sort of far outstrip the resources that are readily available on the planet's surface. And so if humanity is going to continue to grow and thrive as a species and continue to grow exponentially, um, our, our continued thriving depends on harvesting the asteroid resources. Um, the, the issue is that a lot of precious metals and strategic materials on the earth are actually buried at the core of the earth and unaccessible, but they're readily available in the asteroids. And so the asteroids have enough resources for the long-term potential of humanity, you know, for the next thousand years so that we don't have to worry about population growth and limits to, um, to wealth for people. And so my, my sort of deep philosophical motivation is in an unlimited potential for the human species, you know, with horizon as far as you can see without limits to growth. My short-term uh, interest is making it more cost-effective for NASA, other governments and industry to get around in space uh, so that we can get to that long-term vision. So the mining that is 
going on that you're talking about on asteroids and on the moon, I guess here would be a good first place to bring in the question of ethics to all of this. So what you know, kind of what ethical constructs under which are we, um, and I guess our other nations too, uh, going out there and harvesting these uh, important resources from asteroids and the moon? Well, so first to be clear, no one's harvesting those resources yet. It's uh, These are plans on the drawing board. Um, and, but the problem is, is there there is no consistent ethical standard. There are a set of international you know, space law treaties that are um, thought by most to be, you know, imperfect starting points, and we'll find out how they work once we really start to do it. But generally speaking, laws are based on the value system of the civilization that the law reflects. And those value systems are instantiated in rules of moral conduct and ethics. And so, you know, sort of the way the flow goes is you define a set of ethical standards. From those ethical standards, you define laws. And from those laws, you define regulation. And the problem is, is there aren't good ethical standards for activities in space. Um, There's sort of emergent, meaning different people try different aspects of it, but they're not accepted and they're not standardized. Um, This is in tremendous contrast to, say, bioethics. The field of bioethics may be the most mature field of ethics in terms of its formalities and in terms of how it's affected national laws, international laws, regulations, and standards of professional behavior. And so I think it's a really good model to use as we look forward. Um, The issue here is every time humanity has ventured into a new technological realm, whether it was industrialization under the the robber barons, the internet under the current set of internet moguls, um, or, you know, later on space, um, it, it has launched into a new domain based on its old ethical and legal standards. And the problem is here that the old ethical and legal standards are never quite appropriate for the next domain. And so you usually get a situation where you get, um, you get a concentration of, of power and wealth in the hands of a few, which can be, it, it has both positive and negative consequences. You know, and this is what led to, you know, the, the concept of monopolies and the, and the trust busters and that sort of thing in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, and it's what has led to the concentration of wealth um, in the hands of tech moguls today you know, which, which is good because it gives them the capital they need to invest and do great things, but it also gives them the power to edit speech and, uh, uh, you know, to a certain extent, limit the free flow of ideas. And so these things come with pluses and minuses. Um, inevitably, what happens eventually is that society decides after the fact, after the damage has been done, to figure out what the new ethical standards are and what the new legal and, and um, legal standards and um, regulations are. But by then, the damage has already been done. And um, it's time to look at the ebb and flow of history and think about this in advance and not develop these standards in the light of damages that have been done, but rather try to prevent those damages before they're done. And in the case of space technology, 
you know, with these massive vehicles and the huge energy levels that the some of the giant rockets that are being developed contain. Also, the consequences to to um, to the province of humanity, uh, you know, to what we can do to damage where we're going so it ruins it for future generations, the damage it can do to humans who are trying to settle on these places, and the possibility of triggering warfare, which could be tremendously consequential, without, you know, these consequences are large enough, much more significant than the consequences of sort of the mismanagement of the internet that we see today, mm-hmm. that it, it's worthwhile to stop and think about it before we leap and develop some, some, some consensus around some standards here. Before we get to those forward-looking concerns that you've just raised there, I want to back up just for a moment. And let's back up to the 1960s, because we have been uh, engaged in space exploration as a nation and as, as a planet for quite a while now. Um, a lot of that was developed and spurred by the Cold War that was going on at the time and the competitiveness with the Soviet Union. Did we think about any of the same kind of ethical concerns related to that particular time? Or did we really just kind of dive into it out of a presumed necessity, given the the world that we were living in? Well, there, there were some people who were thinking about it, but for the most part, it was a diving in. Um, I think one of the biggest issues that came out of that time frame was that the Soviets were actually working on weapons of mass destruction in orbit. And so this would be a situation where if if that had been allowed to continue, then you would have had, you know, nukes orbiting overhead that could been could have been dropped out of orbit at any time and completely indefensible without any warning to the adversary. And when military strategists and diplomats looked at that, they said, this gives such an advantage to the, offen- to the offense in a war that it's extremely destabilizing and would be an extremely dangerous thing to do. So that actually led to you know, a series of treaties and standards that did sort of change the course of history to a certain extent. On the other hand, you got to keep in mind that Although, you know, people think of the billions being spent in space as a big number, it's really not a very big industry, even if you include all the activities of governments today. I think the total budget for space activities globally is under $300 billion a year. Compare that to the, to the multi-trillion dollar size of just the U.S. economy. Or, you know, there are, you know, trillion dollar industries such as energy um, mining industries, manufacturing industries, um, you know, even telecommunications dwarfs that, you know, by, you know, at least a factor of 10. So it's a rel- so it's a relatively small industry and it hasn't gone into that exponential phase that the internet did or that, you know, the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts did, uh, you know, during the industrialization phase. And so the idea is to get a consensus on this before we get into that exponential phase, which many observers, thinkers, business people, and investors and governments think we're about to enter. Now, given that it is a relatively small activity on a global scale, um, 
now, you know, as I said, $250, $300 billion a year. It is projected to be a multi-trillion dollar industry uh, within the next 10 years. And that's not even including some of these positively disruptive activities that folks like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are, are, are working on. Now, even though it has been a relatively small activity, you know, there have been some pretty significant effects that stem, from, that stem ultimately, I think, from a lack of a consensus around ethics. So when we talk about space ethics, we're talking about a handful of tenets. One of them is embracing bioethics. That'll become important when humans get more serious about being in space. Um, but another one is what we call stewardship, which is sort of making sure you don't mess the place up for other businesses and future generations. And just in the area of stewardship, you know, there have already been so many satellites flown in space and there have been so many collisions between those satellites and there's so much orbital debris that if you're an astronaut flying on a spacecraft at the space station, one of the primary safety concerns you have is your vehicle, either the, your transporter vehicle, like the, you know, the SpaceX Dragon or, or the Russian uh, Soyuz, or the space station itself being impacted by debris when you're there. That's actually chief among NASA's concerns for safety. Now, this is given the fact that the number of satellites that we have in orbit today will be dwarfed in the next five years, probably at least by a factor of 10. And so, um, so this business of orbital trash, orbital debris becoming a navigational hazard well, it's not a super serious issue if you're building a robotic spacecraft and you look at how often they'll be hit. If you're a, you know, an astronaut, it's a significant safety issue. I mean, your chances of, you know, your it, your chances of perishing from orbital debris impact as an astronaut are higher than your chances of perishing uh, if you come down with COVID. And that's today before these mega constellations have been built. There have only been a few thousand satellites flown into low Earth orbit over the entire space age. And, you know, SpaceX alone has proposed and has received uh, some approvals for building a single constellation with more than 30,000 satellites, just to put things in context. And other mega satellites are being planned by Amazon. You know, their Kuiper system has more than 3,000 satellites proposed. So things are about to start to scale in space in ways that we haven't envisioned so far. You mentioned that there are some currently existing treaties that govern some concerns, although uh, I know that some that you have raised, it they may not fully address. What, for the most part, what are those treaties and what do they speak to? So the, the basis of most space law is the Outer Space Treaty which was actually developed in the early 1960s and finally ratified in the late 1960s. It basically, it's, so it's the treaty that I made reference to earlier that prevents weapons of mass destruction in space. And a couple of other key cornerstones of that treaty are that it, um, it prevents nations from claiming territory in space, sort of the way, you know, during the um, Napoleonic, era or the colonial era, you know, European vessel would make landfall. Someone would walk, a captain would walk out with a flag and, you know, claim this territory for, you know, mother country. Uh, it kind of outlaws that. 
it, it provides some structure for space resources, but it's a bit ambiguous on that point. Who can own what in space and how to benefit from space? And there have been other agreements. There are many countries that have signed the Outer Space Treaty. Um, and there are other agreements in place, but I'm not really an expert on those. So one of the things that we've seen a rise of, as I mentioned, the 1960s and the United States, the Soviet Union competing, these are governments developing space programs in competition with, with each other. You've made reference to Elon Musk and SpaceX. You've made reference to Jeff Bezos. Um, we have now private entities that have entered into this space and even made reference to some of what SpaceX is doing. They get approvals for that. Right. How has the entry of private entities into this space um, helped? How has it complicated things? How are we working through some of the issues of private companies now being a leading vehicle for space exploration and perhaps in the future space settlement and uh, other issues? Yeah, exactly. So like everything, um, it's, you know, it has advantages and disadvantages. The primary advantage of private sector companies with profit motivation that invest in their own technology, getting involved in space, is that they're more, frankly more cost effective. Um, the old way of doing this is that the government would contract with traditional aerospace contractors on traditional government contracts that fix the amount of profit that an aerospace company could make on this. And so these are primarily defense contractors uh, and um, they're not investment driven. They're really, they make their money on the contract with the government. So they're not motivated to reduce the cost of those contracts. Whereas what's happening now is the government is, I think, being much smarter, which is it's entering into a public-private partnership with the private sector, where the requirement is that the private sector companies need to invest their own funds and in exchange, the government promises future revenue on a competitive commercial-like basis um, and less of the kind of oversight where the government tells them how to do the job, but more specifies what the government wants and then pays for it in ideal terms, more only if it's delivered. And we have seen benefits from this. We've seen um, you know, cost analysis of these public-private contract, public-private partnerships between um, some of these private sector companies and, say, for example, NASA or the Air Force. Um, cost analysis suggests that they can, they're typically up to six times more cost-effective, one-sixth the cost to get the same capability. There is some additional cost on top of that. When you do full cost accounting, you know, it might be more like half the cost. Uh, but then observers like me and others in the industry also note that the work gets done a lot faster. And, you know, just, just for consideration, the, you know, NASA has already spent many billions of dollars in over a decade on the SLS launch vehicle, which is a, which is a large launch vehicle. It's a large rocket that'll carry, it's designed to carry astronauts into space. And it's projected that the cost of a single SLS launch will approach a billion dollars. Now contrast that with vehicles being developed by SpaceX, vehicles that have been developed by SpaceX, like the Falcon 9 that everyone's familiar with, 
um, which was developed in a fraction of that time at a, and the recurring cost, you know, is substantially less. SLS is a bigger vehicle, but on a per kilogram launched into space basis, it's a much more expensive proposition. And then if you look at, um, you know, if SpaceX is successful in developing its very ambitious next giant rocket, which is called the Starship, this will be a rocket that can fly in and into space. And if it meets the, the goals that Elon has set out for it, it'll be able to fly into space, return to the earth and fly back into space as routinely as an airliner. And it's about uh, twice as big as the, as the uh, Saturn V that put men on the moon in the 1960s. This is really a tremendous advancement. If you look at SpaceX's finances, there is no way they could be spending even a fraction on Starship of what, well, I mean, there's a way they could be spending a fraction, I'm speaking rhetorically, um, but it's clear that they're spending a fraction on Starship of what NASA has spent on the SLS. And they're doing a vastly more sophisticated and advanced vehicle in a fraction of the time. Um, and it looks as though, and the jury is still out, but it looks as though that may also be true of Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin company, which is developing a very large vehicle, uh, not as big as SLS or Starship, but, but pretty big, bigger than the SpaceX Falcon. It's called the New Glenn, and most of it is fully reusable. Um, and again, it seems to be going faster and cheaper, and we'll see. It looks to me like it'll be more reliable, safer, uh, uh, than the, the government-derived counterparts. So there's a big difference. If a company owns the equipment and they're, they're pro providing a service to NASA on a commercial-like contract, there's a big difference between that and the old way of doing business. All those Apollo vehicles were owned by NASA. You know, this weekend, hopefully there'll be a successful launch of multiple astronauts on a SpaceX Falcon with a Dragon to the space station. And that Falcon and that Dragon are owned and operated by SpaceX as a service for NASA, carrying NASA astronauts. And that opens up the possibility that they can also provide that service in the private sector much more cost-effectively. Now, what are the implications of that? Well, you have a private company that's carrying people into space. What are the liability issues associated with that? Now you start to get into some of these ethical issues of, have you demonstrated that it's safe? Um, and who does the burden for that fall upon? In the case of traditional NASA contracts where NASA specifies every aspect of the vehicle and owns the vehicles, you know, the US government is essentially accepting that liability, that risk. Here, it starts to become more ambiguous as we move forward. And as those private companies start to do things that don't involve the government at all using that equipment, it changes the complexion of the problem completely. So there seem to be, or at least we've talked about so far, two different tracks here for uh, as, we, as we move into space. There's oriented towards resources, the, the mining that you talked about earlier, and then uh, travel and settlement. Are those really the two main areas? Are there any that I'm missing? Oh, no, there, there are many different areas of growth in the space sector. So one, one that I made reference to earlier that you really can't leave out of this conversation is these giant constellations of communication satellites. 
So those have the potential to completely change and reinvent communication on planet Earth. You know, right now, the internet backbone is controlled by a relatively small number of very large companies. Um, and this promises to democratize the internet um, backbone services and really make them commercially competitive. Also to globalize communications in a way that we haven't been able to before. Um, you don't have to put um, fiber all through you know, Africa, India, and South America. Uh, small satellite dishes get you broadband internet into every village um, as, you know, as an example. So that's an important one. Um, space tourism, I guess that falls into one of the categories that you talk about or space adventure travel. That has the promise of being a huge industry in the years to come. There is the prospect of moving um, data processing into space. One of the biggest areas of energy consumption here on the surface of the earth are the data processing centers that do all the calculations behind uh, internet services and banking and all that good stuff. It's, when, it's very important that those centers be on trunk lines on the internet backbone. But when the internet backbone is in space, those centers probably should move into space. Um, engineers have done calculations suggesting that in the not too distant future, it would make more sense to move data centers into space rather than having them on the ground. So that's a big industry that can move into space. Um, once we're harvesting resources from the asteroid, it makes sense, asteroids, it makes more sense to start manufacturing products in space. Uh, obviously, for quite some time, those will be the kind of product that we use in space, you know, build satellites in space out of materials harvested in space. But eventually it'll become so cost-effective that it actually makes sense to export manufactured products that are built robotically in space to the surface of the earth. Jeff Bezos has articulated a vision that heavy all heavy industry will move into space. And you know, the engineering and physics and economic principles say that will happen. The question only is when. The reason it'll happen is energy is virtually unlimited in space from the sun. Um, Solar power here on the earth is really at best a marginal proposition. It works really well in sunny places with government subsidies. Um, I have a 10 kilowatt solar panel on my house. It produces here in Southern California, I've got really good access to the sun, on average 30 kilowatt hours a day over the year. In space, it would produce on average 240 kilowatt hours a day, so nearly 10 times as much. Um, so solar power kind of marginally makes sense on the earth for niche applications, but it's huge in space. It's 10 times as good. And as soon as space transportation costs come down to within, say, a factor of 10 of air travel, and I think that'll happen within the next several years, it makes more sense to generate power in space and use it locally. Um, than to generate power on the ground because solar power is so plentiful and will be so inexpensive in space. Not so today. The economics of it are changing radically. Between communications, uh, resources, uh, settlement and travel, who decides who can do what, when, and where? right now. So launching communication satellites, you have uh, both governments uh, of nations and private companies involved with that. Again, the example you pointed out with 
uh, NASA and SpaceX and with Jeff, what Jeff Bezos is working on. Again, you have governments of nations and private companies involved in all of that. Um, any resource mining, again, assumedly governments of nations and private companies involved with that. You, know, you mentioned about the treaty earlier that you, you can't claim territory in space. So who gets to decide these things of who can put what where, who can be where, who can settle where, who can uh, travel where? Yeah, so the, the answer to that question is it depends and it's not clear. So as long as you're doing the kinds of things in space that we've been doing for the last 50 years or so, it's clear who has authority. So if you want to launch a communication satellite in space, you have to get the frequency allocation from the International Telecommunications Union and the FCC. So you get the frequency allocation. Then you have to certify your launch vehicle and get approval from the government. Um, and there are approval processes for all that that make perfectly good sense. Who grants you permission to go harvest precious metals from an asteroid if you incorporate in some small country that's that if you're an internet billionaire, you could basically buy? The answer to that question is much more ambiguous. The answer to the question, who owns the material when you harvest it, is somewhat ambiguous. Clearly, if we're going to be successful in this, we need free markets. And we need people who take, entrepreneurs who take the risk and investors who take the risk to benefit from those activities. And so there needs to be property ownership. When you harvest a resource, you need to be, you need to be able to benefit. So, you know, the current space law and, and in fact, U.S. law, Luxembourg law, and some other laws suggest that once you harvest a resource, you can own that resource and benefit from it financially. Um, however, there isn't universal agreement to that. And, you know, NASA has taken a really good step here with, um, with a couple of things. One is the Artemis Accords. And the other is um, NASA actually posted uh, a contract availability. They, so they, they posted that they would buy any material that someone from, from the surface of the moon, if you could demonstrate that you had a vehicle or a ro robot that had captured this material, say picked it up in a robotic arm and photographed it, proven that you had control over that material, NASA has suggested that it will be willing to buy that material. Um, that implies that the company that scooped up the regolith owned it to sell it in the first place. So it sets a nice legal precedent. And then the Artemis Accords have several positive principles of property ownership, um, proper care of the lunar environment, um, the kinds of things that you'd like to have in an international agreement. They, they don't cover everything, but they cover a lot. Now, the Artemis Accords were developed and signed by a handful of countries without a significant conversation um, in, in ethical circles, uh, in legal circles, you know, to a lot of people, they just came on to the, you know, they just showed up one day in their inter internet inbox. Um, and um, while, you know, I, for one, am a huge fan of the content therein, um, it's already caused the kind of backlash that I'm concerned about. So for example, a couple of um, Canadian planetary scientists 
wrote an op-ed, which was published in the policy section of science recently, saying that this is a terrible precedent because it shows that individual countries can decide on their own regulatory frameworks. And so companies will work with the country that has the loosest regulatory framework and a result to, in a race to the bottom and the destruction of the resources was basically their argument. The argument, I think it's excessively negative. It's not without merit, but you get that kind of a backlash when you don't circulate and develop the principles first and get a consensus in the community of the principles. What we don't want to have happen here is that type of a backlash. We don't want intelligentsia decide to decide that, no, this has to be handled you know, through some type of a non-market socialist process and all the materials need to be owned by governments and so on. That'll just prevent the, the, you know, the big advances that we could have in space from happening. In the year 2020, as we look around the world, we have not only the United States as a nation that has a lot of disagreements in and among itself, um, but a lot of international disagreement as well. How optimistic or hopeful are you that we can develop that kind of necessary international consensus on these ideas? And what do you think would be the best approach to make that an attempt at that a success? Well, I think um, what's happened with bioethics is a good model to go by. So bioethics grew out of World War II and the atrocities uh, Nazi atrocities and Imperial Japanese atrocities and, you know, the trials of Nuremberg and so on. And what had happened was both the Nazis and the Imperial Japanese did experiments with human subjects against their will and using standards that would clearly be viewed as ethically and now legally unacceptable by any reasonable human being. In, by today's standards. The reason we have those standards is because the international community got together, the scientific community primarily, and said, we're not going to, we, we will agree that we will not use any scientific result that comes from scientific research that violates human rights to this degree. So, you know, so, you know, ethics, it's always a Venn diagram. There's an overlap between the human rights considerations and, and other bioethical considerations. Um, and because the great powers and where most of the science was going on agreed to that quickly, it quickly became an issue that no scientist could really do any meaningful work in biology and have it considered by the international community if they didn't subscribe to those standards. And so... Certainly the United States um, still has a significant position in all of this. And the United, if the United States use morals, uses moral persuasion and other economic tools and legal tools and diplomacy, once the ethical frameworks are clear and includes ethicists and scientists and business people from all over the world, um, the United States will be in a position to significantly influence this. So. You know, I'm basically calling for the United States to take a leadership position here and do it through um, persuasion and diplomacy with the rest of the world. This would be a fantastic mission for the Space Council to take on. The Space Council is a multi-agency body run um, out of the office of the vice president 
to coordinate space activities in the United States. Um, traditionally, it had existed for decades and then it was abolished and uh, Trump brought it back. Traditionally, it's chaired by the vice president. This would be a fantastic challenge for the Space Council to take up, is really defining these standards of bioethics. How does the business of environmental stewardship enter in so that when businesses are up there doing things, they don't disrupt or ruin the environment for other businesses and other potential players. The way it started to happen a little bit with debris in low Earth orbit. How do we ensure human rights and the rule of law? These are important questions that we need international consensus on as we move forward. As we start to look towards, say, what um, Elon Musk has talked about with settlements on on Mars or settlements on the moon and who knows how far technology and advancement take us and to uh, where else we may have settlements in the future. Um, I, I'd seen a story of Elon Musk saying that, you know, settlement on Mars would not be governed by, I think as the headline termed it, Earth law. How do we decide for communities that are going to exist on another planet, especially given the context that we've just talked about of, you know, different nations being involved, uh, different private companies being involved, of how those settlements will be governed. Exactly. When, as you move from exploration to settlement, the ethical implications are radically different. Um, astronauts in space, you, you know, you get adult, highly trained scientists and engineers who are perfect physical specimens who spend typically days or weeks in space at most a few years and then they come back and it's the equivalent of the sort of exposure of a limited phase one medical trial. Probably everything that we've done in space in its application towards settlement is less than a phase one medical trial. As you start talking about settling in space, the ethical considerations are radically different. Now you're talking about people of all shapes and sizes, living their entire lives in a space environment, exposed to, potentially exposed to radically different radiation, radically different uh, gravity, and then raising children, gestating fetuses, and having those go through life cycles. There are good biological reasons to expect that these damaging effects can you know, accumulate over generations. So, when an astronaut goes up and spends a few years in space, he's making a decision for himself. And maybe if, if he or she has not had children, making a modest decision for a future generation. But if you're settling, you're making massive decisions for future generations. And, um, and we haven't, you know, there's a general standard that you don't do th something to a large population of people biologically that hasn't been validated as safe. And we haven't done that validation relative to settlement. Now, no large settlements are planned in the super near term, uh, but people like Elon are talking about, well, I'm committed to building a city on Mars with a million people by 2050, say. You know, that means starting settlements very soon in our lifetimes. Um, you know, it may be that the right thing to do is some significant bio research in orbit. You know, we haven't done the even the studies with animals of multi-generational radiation exposure in a reduced gravity environment. You know, we have the technology to do that research, but we haven't done it. Generally, bioethics 
turns into law and regulation. And most free countries, most reasonable countries, have regulations that say, you know, you can't make billions of dollars selling a product that you don't have any scientific reason to think is not tremendously harmful. And so um, it's time to start taking this seriously. And we, it takes a long time to do the type of biological research that I'm talking about. And maybe it's something that NASA needs to get serious about is, um, you know, space stations that rotate to provide variable G, different levels of radiation protection, and, you know, large population animal studies on space stations looking at these effects. Um, so, you know, that's kind of a call for taking it seriously from a scientific perspective and also using the guideline of bioethics to tell us what work needs to be done. You know, it's one thing if a bunch of adults want to go somewhere, very, very dangerous. It's another thing if a company wants to make billions of dollars or trillions of dollars selling a product or a service, which we just haven't done scientific research to show that it's three generations later, it's not going to do horrible things, you know, like, like the thalidomide uh, issue uh, to future generations of people living on those settlements. So bioethics starts to become very serious. Also, when you talk about settlements and putting, you know, at least hundreds, maybe thousands or millions of people onto a planetary body, if there's any sense in the science community that there may be radically important scientific discoveries at that body that could be destroyed, you've got to think carefully about that um, in terms of stewardship. Uh, you know, probably the most philosophically important scientific unknown that we have as, as a people is, are we alone in the universe? To what extent are we alone in the universe? Is there other life in the universe? Now, there are lots of theories about this and talk to any scientist and you can get a different perspective on it because it's all theory and there is no data. But those scientists who believe that life may be common in the universe think that it's very likely that there could currently be microbes living on Mars um, or more likely that Mars has you know, that it had microbes that may have gone extinct due to climate, you know, due to the radic radical changes in the Martian environment. So here we have possibly the most significant scientific question to face our species. Is there other life in the universe? We have a target, Mars, where there may be life. And we have no idea what it would take to disrupt that life. So part of my argument about space ethics is that the human diaspora, you know, the, the expansion of human, human habitats, you know, that has where the species has spread across the globe has been, you know, tremendous for the species. You know, we are a species of hunter gatherers, explorers, wanderers, and settlers. That's why we've been so successful biologically. But if you look back over history at these events, they have come with challenges. Um, typically, you know, colonial expansion and settlement also brought with it famine and disease to indigenous populations, destruction of habitats as, you know, when animals from one continent were let loose on another continent. Um, they, it was done in a way without careful consideration of legal and property considerations such that it led to, you know, wars and mass slaughter, 
what I'm suggesting is let's stop and think about this a little bit before we jump into it the way we did before. It would be a terrible legacy of the space program if the effect of the space program was to go to Mars before we really understood the environment very thoroughly, build a city and destroy the prospect of ever finding out if there was Martian life or even, you know, and I'm speaking, you know, in a worst possible case, maybe there is some kind of a delicate Martian biosphere that exists now. So, you know, here we are, human beings from planet Earth traveled to Mars and instead of just driving a few species to extinction, we destroyed a biosphere. That's not a good legacy. Um, the standard in bioethics is you don't claim something is safe until you have proof that it's safe. Phase one trial, phase two trial, phase three trial. One of the things that we know about biology, which is very different from engineering or physics, is that having a theory doesn't really help in biology. You have to prove it experimentally with measurements. Um, people have theories about what life might be like on Mars if it exists. We have no data at all. Let's send, you know, a hundred rovers and do a hundred robotic sample return missions inside cra cracks and crevices in every environment on Mars to really understand it and search, search for life before we talk seriously about building cities that could destroy it if it does exist. We've talked about bioethics, talked about stewardship. Are there any other major ethical concerns that come with uh, space travel, space exploration, space settlement that we um, that aren't addressed yet with those two? Well, one that you can never rule out is human rights. So, um, you know, there is an emerging standard, you know, it's been emerging for 500 years of this concept of human rights on, on planet Earth. The idea of, uh, you know, that people are born with these inalienable you know, rights to life, liberty, property, pursuit of happiness. Um, and from that was derived the, the Bill of Rights. And, you know, from that, you know, freedom and uh, free markets and free expression uh, have, you know, been a tre tremendously spread throughout much but not all of the, the globe. You know, one of the emerging space powers is China. You know, China is acting very colonial as a colonial imperialist power here on the earth, you know, building islands and claiming new areas of territory in the sea. That's a very colonial kind of a thing to do. They've essentially said that they, they view the moon and, and as a similar kind of thing, they intend to do the same thing there. And China does not have a great track record when it comes to human rights. Um, you know, will the world stand by if a private company or a country like China Know, goes and builds settlements that are willfully unsafe or in, enslave and entrap people or do the equivalent of indentured servitude. Now, no one is seriously talking about doing that, but given human nature and given the track record of different powers and different type, different people on the earth, you know, you can't rule it out. Wherever humanity goes in space, we're going to bring our nature. We're going to bring our brilliance. We're going to bring our kindness. We're going to bring our love. And we're going to bring these darker things. And it's the brilliance, the kindness, and the love that causes us to want to put these ethical standards in place so that the darker forces, you know, don't dominate and uh, ruin it for everyone. And let me say this about space ethics. What I'm mostly concerned about in the short term is that we take, we as a people, the United States as a people, take the moral high ground, take the ethical high ground. 
in an unquestionable way where we openly debate these issues um, so that there isn't a negative backlash to what people are planning. You know, I am a gigantic fan in general of what Elon Musk and SpaceX and uh, Richard Branson and, you know, Virgin Galactic and Virgin Orbital and then uh, Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin are doing. But I don't want there to be an intelligentsia backlash or a mass backlash. Um, as an engineer and a scientist, it's my belief that the safest, cleanest form of electric power that we could have, that if, you, if you're one of those who cares about global warming and carbon, you should really advocate, is nuclear. But we don't have effective nuclear power in the United States today because the regulatory regimes are unreasonable. And it's, it's my belief that part of that is because there's a bit of an irrational fear about nuclear power that came out of a hysteria surrounding the movie, The China Syndrome, and the Three Mile Island incident, which was grossly overblown in the context of the China Syndrome. We don't want that kind of a negative reaction to all the wonderful things that people are doing and planning in space. And we started to see a little bit of that negative reaction with the um, policy paper that I made reference to in science. Also, Rick Tumlinson, who's a, a visionary and um, a thinker in the field of space, you know, he, he coined the term new space for a lot of these industries that are point breaking up and new space has become a standard. Recently, he coined another term, which I think is a warning for us all, the Elysium effect. So um, Elysium was a Matt Damon movie where billionaires built the kinds of colonies in space that, you know, the, the ultra wealthy built the kinds of colonies in space that I would like to see, you know, made out of asteroid materials, nor earth normal gravity and radiation protection so it's safe. And so the ultra wealthy lived in these wonderful colonies in space, while the masses lived in squalor on the earth uh, with disease and squalor. And, you know, so basically it was a, um, an envy play. The movie was an envy play on um, class warfare. Tomlinson is, has suggested in an op-ed that he wrote that we could have an Elysium effect here. He's predicting it. That people will look at what folks are doing and say, well, this is just a game for the rich and it's not going to benefit all of us on earth. Nothing could be further than the truth. All of these activities that we're talking about in space ultimately will benefit the people of the earth. That's what it's all about. But if there's a perception that it doesn't and people start to get um, you know, carried away with rules and regulations that prevent entrepreneurs from benefiting from their work or overregulate it before it's time, it could shut the whole thing down, and that would be very detrimental. And that's one of the things I'd like to prevent. Final question for you, Joel. So as we look at society in the year 2020, Ross Douthat, a columnist from the New York Times, recently had a book talking about our decadent society and meaning it not in the sense of how people usually think of decadence, but just that stagnant and not moving. And you've highlighted some clear examples here of incredible innovation. Um, one of the things that really animated the the human spirit, and particularly here in the United States, is as we moved westward until we found the far west coast, um, we settled new areas. Uh, it, it, there was a sense of that adventure and entrepreneurship that you talked about earlier. 
do you think that space kind of holds the opportunity to maybe pull us out for those who think we're in this kind of stagnant, perhaps decadent age that pull us out of those doldrums in a way, especially if we approach it in a truly ethical way that we've thought through as, as you've described, kind of pull us out of this kind of feeling of who are we and where do we go now? Yeah. I, so I think humanity has been coasting for the past few to several decades. Um, and it comes from a perception that there are limits to growth and that the future can't continue to get exponentially better for our, our descendants. Part of what excites me about space is this potential of an unlimited future. And, and, and there's an optimism that comes with that. It's you know historically because of westward expansion, the, that kind of optimism was one of the things that distinguished the United States from other countries. And we need to rekindle that spirit of optimism uh, for humanity moving into the future. And it's definitely driving innovation and tremendous breakthroughs. But in order to make all that happen, we have to do it right. And so let's learn from our history, both the successes and the failures. And let's put in place the approaches that can help us do it right and make it better for humanity. Joel Sercell is a entrepreneur and innovator who has co-founded three successful companies, ICS Associates, Momentus, and TransAstra. He's a six-time NASA NIAC fellow and one of the first two NIAC fellows to have received a Phase Three award. Joel, thank you so much for joining us today on Act in Line. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our team loves putting this show together for you every week, and it's so encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can reach our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Act in Line, I'm Eric Cohn.